So we are ready to discuss the blessings that Yaakov gives to his children before he passes away. As I already mentioned, Yaakov was the first person he prayed to God to be sick, to know his end of days are coming, so he'd have the opportunity to give his final blessings, his final spiritual will and testament to his children. And as he knows that is near the very end of his life, and therefore any words of rebuke he gives will not be held against him, his children will be embarrassed in front of him. Yaakov calls all of his children together. He says, come and gather, and I will say to you what will happen at the end of days. Which means, I want to tell you, when Mashiach will come, one will be the end of the exile, the end of the whole story of Jewish history, all of our suffering. And at that moment when Yaakov was about to reveal to his children when will be the Achris Hayyamim, the end of days, all of a sudden, the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of divine prophecy that had been resting upon him, disappears. And he becomes very, very afraid. And he thinks, uh-oh, Obviously, my children who seem to be righteous and who have acted before me as if they're righteous are really not so righteous. I remember the like of and his father, Yitzchak. So they're really not so righteous, and therefore God has taken away the, uh, the spirit of prophecy from upon me. And therefore, uh, he, um, he, uh, he gets afraid. So his children say to him, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekein Hashem Echad. To know that we are all righteous, we are all holy, we all serve. Hashem Echad, one God. And when he hears that, he responds with, thanks, Baruch Shem, Kemachus HaNavad, I bless the name of God's kingdom forever and ever, that all my children are righteous. And then the spirit of Ruach HaKodesh comes back upon him, but he realizes, obviously, he's not meant to share with his children the end of days when Mashiach will come. Now, you can ask a very, very simple question, which is that if Yaakov would tell, imagine, the, let's say the spirit of divine prophecy did not leave Yaakov. And he would tell his children when Mashiach would finally come. You know how depressing that would be? <laughs> Imagine he tell his kids, this is going back now 3,000 something years ago. And he's going to tell his children, though, guys, it's going to be a long time until exile is over. We're still in exile. I mean, Gabbal today is the last day, and Mashiach will come today. But even till today, it's been quite a long Gabbal. That's not very, like, why would Yaakov tell his children that Mashiach is not coming for another 3,000, however many years it is? So simply, Yaakov understood the power of a Jewish person to bring in shortening to suffering and to exile. You see with Yaakov's own life, there was a divine decree that there'd be a famine in Egypt for seven years. How long did the famine last for? Two years. When Yaakov came, he gave a blessing and he shortened the famine by five years and that the Nile started to rise. I mean, Yaakov understood that just because of the decree in heaven for X amount of punishment or X amount of suffering, we have the power to shorten that through our actions, through our prayers, through our mitzvot, etc. And therefore, he thought that by telling my children how far away the ultimate scheduled redemption is, not that his children would get depressed and demoralized and say, we give up, but the contrary, that they would this would motivate them to realize that we have an obligation to speed things up over here and we have the power through our praying to Hashem, through our doing the right thing, to, in, to speed up and to hasten the coming of Mashiach, that it shouldn't take so long to come much faster, just like Yaakov sped up the end of the famine by five years. Yeah. When Yaakov spoke to Noah like this, how it lasted six months, That was the question I'm asking. I asked, you know, for Hashem to go and tell us right. 3,000 years of suffering, of persecution, of pogroms, of the Holocaust, of the Crusades, of Kazakh, you know. 
Yeah, everything. Yeah. But Yaakov was thinking, Yaakov was thinking that my children will be motivated by this knowledge to work harder to, to speed up. The, not that they should take this information as, okay, this is what it is and it's not changeable. To take that information to like, like let, let's say I tell you, you know, if you don't do anything, you're going to end up spending, I don't know, a million dollars on your mortgage. But if you refinance now, I'm sure you can save over the course of the 30 years, you'll save half a million dollars. I don't know. Right? So it's not like, okay, so I'm wasting half a million dollars. That knowledge is meant to motivate you to now go do the work, to go refinance, to go save money. So the Jews knowing that we're going to be in so much suffering, that would motivate them to, to do something about it. Understand? Anyway, let us continue with the actual blessings that he gives to his children before he passes away. So the first of the 12 children, of course, is Reuven. He goes in order of birth and he says, Reuven, you are my firstborn child. At least you should have been my firstborn child. You are my very, very first might, voracious, only the beginning of my strength, meaning the very first drop of semen to ever come out of Yaakov was the semen that was the night of his wedding that gave birth to Reuven. I had never wasted my seed even one time. And Yaakov was 84 when he gave birth to, to, to Reuven. I have never, you were the very first drop of strength that came out of my body. You were the very beginning. And therefore, you should have been foremost in rank and foremost in power, meaning you should have been the leader. Not only should you have been the firstborn, which is a double portion of inheritance, you should have been the leader of the people as far as the priests, and you should have been yes, or is more in power as the kings. Kings should have come from you. Uh, the priests should have come from you, but you lost it. Why did you lose it? Because pachas Because you showed yourself to be impetuous and impulsive, like a raging river, and you couldn't control your impulses. And when you got offended by the fact that I moved my bed from the tent of Rachel into the tent of Rachel's maid Bilha, instead of moving it into your mother's tent, into Leah's tent, and you got upset and you moved my bed from Bilha's tent into your mother's tent, you invaded my own private life. A child should never get involved with the marital life of their parents. That's off balance. That's not a child should never be there. And therefore, since you went in a place you didn't belong in an impetuous way, and you went up on the bed of your father, and you have uh, profaned the name of God, because the Shekhinah itself rests on my bed. This is true for every single person, really. The greatest act of godliness actually exists in our beds. The ability to create another child, which is as close to being infinite, as close to being godly as a human being can be, is the act of creation of a human being. Nothing more godly than that. So the Shekhinah is resting upon my bed, and you profane the name of God when you moved my bed, and therefore, even though you repented and you confessed, but since, we'll talk about that later, nevertheless, since you acted in this impulsive way, you have lost these rights. A firstborn is going to Yosef, as we discussed yesterday or two days ago. The priesthood is going to the tribe of Levi, and the kingdom will go to the tribe of Yehuda. Now, of course, there's a lot of discussion in the commentary. How could Yaakov do this? At the end of the day, Yaakov is violating a prohibition in the Torah. The Torah tells us, that if you have two children, there's a clear black and white prohibition. So that's not like uh, if you have two children, the firstborn goes to the oldest child, even if the firstborn is the wife of your hated wife, and you have another loved wife, you're not allowed to show favoritism to the ch child of your loved wife over the child of your hated wife. 
And this is exactly the case study the Torah later on, Book of Dvarim, prohibits. And there we see clearly that Yaakov is showing favoritism and giving the firstborn rights, not to the firstborn of his hated wife, Ruvain, but to Yosef, the firstborn of his loved wife. So how could he do that? A lot of commentary in the commentaries. If the, if the forefathers kept the Torah, you can argue that the Ramban says that the forefathers did not keep the Torah out of the land of Israel. And therefore, in Egypt, Yaakov didn't keep the Torah. The Arachayim is a very, very lengthy uh, explanation. But the point is, and part of the point anyway, is that the forefathers only kept the Torah as like a rishos. As a as something they were allowed, they were they got reward for doing it, but not as an obligation. And therefore, when there was a prophecy that overrode the normal laws of the Torah, for example, marrying two sisters, which is also a prohibition in the Torah. But since Yaakov saw a prophecy that there were children were destined to come from both these women, so the Ruach Hakodesh, just like you have even after the Torah was given, that you're not allowed to uproot a law. But say, Yoanavi went to Har Hakarmel. And he offered offerings there outside the base of Mikdash, which you're not allowed to do. But then he said that the law changed. The law is the law. But I have permission from God in this extenuating circumstance to cut, to temporarily not follow the law. But the law still stands. So therefore, you have this ex- other explanations why Yosef. But the point is that Yaakov changed says to Reuben, you lost it because of your impetuousness. We'll go further. Shimon and Levi are united together as one. They are brothers. They don't get to each their own blessing. They are united together. Shimon Balevi, they're brothers, brothers in crime, brothers in a craft stolen from Esau. What was the craft of Esau? Killing the sword. And they use the sword to go and use their weapons of violence to go and fight against the city of Shechem. When Shechem had taken the sister Dina, even though they had acted with honor to respect their, you know, to honor their sister Dina, to defend her, they should have just killed Shechem, the person, the father and the son. Why did they kill the whole city? They took their anger to let it go too far. And therefore, let my soul not enter into their secrets, or into their conspiracies. And let my name not be mentioned. My honor have no part of their family. Because in their anger, they killed a man. Who is the man? Shechem. But they killed the whole city. And they were so angry that they looked at the whole city like one man. They would have been a little bit more calm, a little more discernment. They would have been able to understand that the whole city doesn't deserve destruction, but they killed the whole city of one man. And in their in their wildness and their desire, they tried to uproot an ox. Who's the ox? That's a prophecy that when Moshe Rabbeinu will bless the Jewish people, he will compare Yosef to an ox. And it was Shimon Levi that wanted to kill Yosef and to uproot the ox. Therefore, says Yaakov, let my soul not enter into their secret. What's the secret? Is it referring to the descendant of Levi? Descendant of Levi, sorry, descendant of Shimon. Shimon will have a child called, a great grandchild called Zimri. Zimri is the prince of the tribe of Shimon. And when the Midianite girls seduce the Jews into a plague and Jews are dying and say, Zimri, help us, Zimri very publicly takes the daughter of Midian, the daughter of Tzur, the princess of Midian, and publicly is intimate with her. Says to Moshe, what are you going to do about it? You're also married to a Midianite girl. It's a Porus from Midian. And that's when Pinchas kills Zimri. So then the Torah does not mention that Zimri is a descendant of Yaakov. Only a descendant of Levi. So too, let my uh, name not be mentioned in their, my honor not be mentioned amongst their, com- their, their community, their congregation, their assembly. That's referring to the descendant of Levi. Levi is going to have a great-grandchild called Korach. 
And Korach will be the one who fights against Moshe Rabbeinu and tries to say that Moshe Rabbeinu does not represent Hashem. You have people like that, sadly. And so therefore, he says, let my name not be associated with those people. Okay. There, then he says the next verse, Arur abam ki az. Cursed is their rage, for it is fierce. Cursed is their fury, for it is harsh. Now you see something very beautiful over here. Even though Shimon and Levi are being kind of rebuked for their impetuousness and for their anger, they are never directly cursed. Their anger is cursed. Arur apam, cursed is their anger for it is fierce. Their fury, for it is harsh. So you see clearly, even the person does a sin, God's going to say, you're a sinner, you should be punished. You're, the sin you did is evil, the action should be destroyed, not you yourself. Therefore, I will separate them from each other. I'll separate them from, first I'll separate Levi from being counted amongst the 12 tribes of Yaakov. Right, as we already mentioned, when we count the 12 tribes, we don't count Levi. Levi is their own legion, they become the priests. And therefore, I will scatter them amongst the land of Israel that Levi does not have any territory. There's no tribal territory of Levi. They are scattered all amongst the land in little cities everywhere. This will prevent them from being able to make trouble because they're all scattered. So to the tribe of Shimon, Levi at least is more honorable that they have to travel to all the granaries to collect the tithe, the miser. That's how they live, but they don't live together. Shimon will be in a position that they'll be poor and they'll have to be like the scribes and the scholars will also travel from town to town like peddlers looking for money. And therefore, they'll also be scattered amongst the Jewish people of Israel. Okay, let's go to Yehuda. Last one we'll do today. A big blessing for Yehuda. Yehuda gets scared. Yehuda, he hears the way Reuben is being uh, admonished and Shimon Levi being admonished. Uh, oh, here comes my turn, Tamar, and this and that. He starts to hide. And Yehuda, so Yaakov says, Yehuda, you are not like your brothers. You are Yeducha Achecha. You are the, your brothers will praise you. You will be a leader and a king whose hand will be on the neck of your enemies and your brothers will bow down to you. Your enemies will rise up against you. Your hand will be on the neck to push them down. Your brothers will worship you and will prostrate before you. You are like a gur Arya Yehuda. You are like a young lion cub. We're referring to the first king from the descendants of Yehuda, which is King David. King David will come from, uh, will begin his career like a young lion cub when he kills Goliath. He'll be a king who's subservient to Shaul. If you know the beginning of David's story, he's the son-in-law of Shaul. Shaul wants to kill him. It takes time until he becomes the actual king. But you, And then he'll be like a lion who the whole world will be afraid of him, who will, people will be afraid to even arouse him. This will be in the times of his son Shlomo Melech, where the whole world around him will be subservient to the power of the nation of Israel. They'll be paying taxes, etc. That the, the uh, rod will never go away from the, the stick of rulership, will not depart from Judah, and the lawgivers will never leave from between his feet until will come Shiloh, who is Shiloh, a reference to Mashiach, and he will gather in all the nations. So here's another part of the blessing of Yehuda. That Yehuda is going to be the kings of the Jewish people from the time of King David, which we already mentioned is the, uh, young, lion, the, the, the young lion cub, from when King David becomes a king, the kingdom will never leave the Jewish people. Even when the Jews will no longer have a kingdom. Even when the Jews will no longer be in Jerusalem, will be in exile, in diaspora, in Babylonia, etc. Even then, the lawgivers and the Sanhedrin and the, the, the heads of the Jewish community in, in Chutz La'aretz, in diaspora, called the Reish Bnei Galusa, the head of the Jewish community, they all were descended from 
the family of Yehuda. Ad Shila, until it comes Shiloh. Shiloh is a reference to Mashiach, who also is going to be a descendant of Yehuda, meaning that the dynasty of leadership of the Jewish people will remain amongst Yehuda from King David through the time of exile with the other rabbis until the coming of Mashiach, God willing, very, very soon. Why does Yehuda deserve this great blessing of being the kings? You want to know why does it go? Reuben Robert is asking why uh, Yehuda gets it, not Yosef. So what's the great... Well, correct. So really the question is why is he not going to Reuben? Yosef is not the firstborn. I already told you the question is why did Reuben lose it? Yosef gets a, Yosef is not really the firstborn. Yosef gets the firstborn double inheritance, where his two sons inherit the two uh, become two tribes. But the real question is if Reuven sinned and Reuven did Teshuva, and if Yehuda sinned and Yehuda did Teshuva, so why does Yehuda become the king and not Reuven? Why did Reuven lose that? Exactly, exactly. So as the Torah says, you, you, rose, you, you rose up from the prey, meaning you had two opportunities where you could have hidden yourself and you could have absolved yourself. The first was with your brother Yosef, where you rose up from amongst your brothers who wanted to kill Yosef and you saved his life, even though you said, let's do it for benefit and all that. In Judaism, we don't look at what your intentions are. We look at your actions. Some people are big into intentions, and intentions are it's important too. But what matters is the results. So even though the Torah tells us explicitly that Reuben had in his heart to save his brother's life, that was his intention. But guess what? He didn't actually do it. He didn't actually save his brother. And therefore, he gets no credit for trying to save his brother. Whereas Yehuda, who maybe his intentions were not so pure, his actions actually protected those who he felt responsible for. Yehuda did this because he felt responsible for his brother. He saved his brother's life and he rose up from amongst the other brothers to save him, to have him taken out of the pit. And the second time was with Tamar. Same thing with Tamar. Even though Yehuda perhaps sinned with Tamar, he was intimate with his daughter-in-law. Not such a noble act, seemingly. But when he found out that Tamar was pregnant, he says she should be taken and killed for being unfaithful. And then Tamar sends in secret in the clothes package, the signet ring and the cloak and the stick. and says, this is who it belongs to. And Yehuda had the opportunity to deny it. She didn't accuse him. She gave him the opportunity. And Yehuda rose up from being embarrassed and being shamed by saying, yes, I was the one that made my daughter-in-law pregnant. Yehuda didn't, and didn't hide behind what he did. He stood up with, with, with strength of character and said, I'm guilty. I did something wrong. Why? To save his daughter-in-law's life and the two unborn children that would have been killed as well. And because of that, since you rose up from the prey, and you are willing to admit your mistake in a way that will have impact on somebody else or save somebody else's life, therefore, you have proven yourself to be worthy of leadership. Leadership is not about your intentions. Leadership is about your results, your actions. So it makes a difference if you have good intentions. If you help other people, you're deserving of leadership. If you want to help other people and you feel desire to help other people in your heart, but practically speaking, it's just in your heart and it's not impacting somebody else, then you're moving. That, that has no value. Let's just finish off the blessing of Yehuda. Not only is Yehuda blessed to become a king, he's also blessed with a very, very fertile t- territory. He's such a rich area, such a, 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 a naturally uh, um, nutrient-filled area that when they'll grow vines, there'll be so many vines, 
that he'll tie his donkey with one vine in order to load up his donkey with one other vine. A whole vine will be a full donkey load of grapes that will come off each and every vine. So much like used it the vine to tie the donkey. He'll wash his clothing in wine and his cloak in the juice of grapes. Again, it doesn't mean literally he'll wash his clothing in wine. I cannot think of a very effective way of washing your clothing. Point is, there'll be so much wine in his territory, so many grapes, it's a sign of wealth, that it'll be like, like water. His addition, his, his teeth will be white from uh, milk. Because again, there'll be so much milk and from the territory so wealthy, the teeth will be white from drinking milk. And his mountains will look red from the vineyards and the wine press will drip with the wine from the abundance of food that he has and the grain and the flocks that are growing in his territory.